thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Today we're continuing our study of the sixth seal, and we're starting chapter 7 in the book of Revelation. We're going to focus on verse 1 through 17 and see how far we can get through this. Before we do that, a couple of uh, quick announcements. For those of you, especially with Latin Rite, who have not um, experienced this, you would do yourself a great favor in doing so. Um, go to uh, Our Lady of the Rosary, which is in Little Italy, and uh, on um, the Sunday of um, the um, of uh, Divine on Divine Mercy, the Divine Mercy Sunday at four o'clock, there is a Latin Mass in a Nuovo Ordo. So it is the Mass as you know it, but it is as it's supposed to be. There's beautiful choir. The architecture of the church is uh, outstanding. And you would experience the Mass of Vatican II as it's supposed to be celebrated. So that's a quick uh, suggestion. And also, if you've not uh, yet uh, participated in liturgy here at uh, 9 o'clock on, on Sundays, I invite you to do it at least once to taste the Maronite liturgy. Call me biased, but uh, I think it's beautiful. I'd like also to read to you this text that uh, Michael passed on to me. I think it's very apropos. This is Abraham Lincoln's 1863 Thanksgiving Proclamation. I'd like you to listen to what he said. It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. Know that by His divine law, nations, like individuals, are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins, to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people? We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power, and no other nation has, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us 
and we have vainly imagined in a deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged, as with one heart and one voice, by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. I don't think I have anything else to say. This is a view that was common. He doesn't have to fight for it, explain it, justify it, like I have to. We have to regain this. We have to recover that. This is what this is all about. God is involved in history. And history cannot be understood apart from Scripture. Scripture is the key to history. All right, especially the book of Revelation. It's the pattern. It shows us how God treats with us throughout history. It isn't a book about the end of times only. Yeah, it's that, but it's about us today. It's much more meaningful than a book where we go and read and find out the secrets that God had put in there about the end times. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or on sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 sealed out of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed out of the tribe of Benjamin. We're going to stop right here and see if we can get through those, actually those eight verses. My caveat of last week still stands today. Remember this Alice in Wonderland syndrome that I talked to you about. We hear words and we automatically, automagically apply to them meaning that is relevant to us without ever asking ourselves the question, this is an image? Is that a symbol? What did they intend to mean? Remember when I told you about the guy who understands everything literally? You tell him, give me a break, and he dutifully goes out and buys you a break and gives it to you. You tell him to go hit the road, he'll get a hammer and start hitting the road. Why? He has no way, no notion of distinguishing between an image and its actual meaning to him. Everything means exactly what you say. This is the literalist approach. We have to have a literal meaning. It doesn't have to be a literalist meaning in every single case. We have to discern. So in this specific instance, 
we're talking about four corners of the earth, four winds of the earth. Is the intent is the intent to actually speak of the actual physical four corners of the earth? Is the intent to actually speak about the actual physical four winds? How do you number winds, by the way? Right? What is that? What you need to start thinking this way. You have to train yourself not to be hypnotized by the text, thinking, aha, there's this big secret hidden in there, let me dig. Right? You go through the paper and you won't find anything. You have to think logically. Really? Did they think about four corners? We've already dealt with that. Four winds? Is it really four winds? Remember the preceding passage last week. What did we deal with? I mean, not last week, the week before. We had the first four seals. What were they? Horses. Horsemen. Were there really horses? Remember I asked this question? Were there actually horses coming out from heaven and flying down? You know, were there in a rocket, a parachute? I mean, what? Don't, don't get too tightly attached to the physical image. You've got to keep a loose hand. So let's dig a little bit into this and try to understand what this is all about. The four angels standing in the four corners of the world refer to their sovereignty over the whole world. Right? The reason why they stand at the four corners means that they actually encompass the entire world. And the reason why it is four corners, it is because we've seen already, the earth is an altar. It's an altar of sacrifice. This is again liturgical. We have to keep the liturgy in our minds. We don't get out of the liturgy. This is very important. So by them standing at the four corners of the earth, they actually encompass the whole world. There is a very interesting image, a symbol, representing those four angels, which we find in the book of Exodus, Um, chapter 38, verse 5. When the description of the building of all the different pieces that go into the tent is given, we get to the altar of sacrifice. The altar is hollow inside. There is a mesh on top of it where you offer the sacrificial, you make the sacrificial offering and the blood pours down. We've seen already the souls of the faithful ones sitting under the altar. Well, Four rings are placed at the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles, so that the poles will lift the altar by the four rings. So think of those four rings that hold the altar as the four angels standing at the four corners. It is those four rings that are able to actually lift up the altar. They control its movement. And hence those angels standing at the four corners act in likewise manner. Now, the angel coming from the east, so that we have the four angels standing in the four corners, holding back the four winds of the earth, and then we saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun. So, of course, he's ascending from the east. Now, we are familiar with the, we're linking the east with God. You know, the churches are supposed to be oriented towards the east. In fact, in French, the word we use to be oriented is the same word for east. So in a Catholic Catholic sense, to be oriented is to be easted. All right? However, in the book of Revelation, it is also the case that evil comes from the east. In in chapter 16, verse 12, we're going to get to it eventually. 
evil powers are portrayed as coming from the east. So probably parody is at play here. Parody is at play. Angels are in control of the whole world, including the east, including the lair from which the enemy is coming. And from that point, you see this powerful angel ascending, proclaiming to those angels to hold the four winds. And what is he proclaiming? He, he, He asks that no wind might blow on earth or on sea or against any tree. Um, so he doesn't want any of these to be harmed until the servants have been sealed. So let's now look at this idea of seal. Now, before we do that, yeah, I knew I was going to miss a whole chunk. Let's talk about the four winds. The... The four winds are actually associated with the four horses. Four winds, four horses, the same thing. It's a different way of representing the same reality. So those four horses that were sent down in the breaking of the seals one through four are now waiting. They are ready to get in action, but they're being held back. Remember when I told you this whole section is a section that it prepares the action. Nothing has yet happened. It's all preparation. The only action that will take place is actually the sealing, which we're going to see a little bit later. In Job chapter 1 verse 19, we read, when suddenly, in, in Job chapter 1, a man comes running to him to let Job know that his children died. And he says to him, When suddenly a great wind came across the desert and smote the four corners of the house, it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So the winds are, and I will quote to you more passages from Scripture, one of their chief role is to act as judgment. They convey the judgment of God. Uh, The Lord himself, remember when he said about the man who would build the house on the sand? He'll build his house on the sand. What will come against the house eventually? Wind. So the idea again, judgment will come and this house will not stand. In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12 speaks of the day of the Lord when he will raise a signal to the nation and gather the outcasts of Israel. The dispersed of Judah he shall assemble from the four corners of the earth. So the four corners is also has this idea that all of the world is going to be covered by the action that is going to follow. I said that already, but I I just wanted to um, back that up by a couple of quotations. We find it also in Ezekiel 7.2 that the four corners encompass the entire land. Son of man, now say, thus, the, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, and end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. And also in Revelation chapter 20, Satan will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. So anytime you hear four corners, understand the entire earth is encompassed. And let's go back to the wind now. So the wind refers figuratively to the entire known world. That's one of the ideas. The other one is that are the four horses. Let me go through the first one in order. 
In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9, we read, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the Spirit, prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the Spirit, Thus says the Lord God, From the four winds come, O Spirit, and breathe into these slain, that they may come to life. So the notion of the four winds is, again, a complete covering. So we have the four corners and the four winds. Generally speaking, the four winds have also the notion that they cover the entire earth. But then there's a narrower meaning that I was looking at, and I, I spoke about it a little bit earlier. There are the four horses. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 36, I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of the heavens. I will scatter them to all these winds, till there is no nation to which the outcast of Elam shall not come. So here the winds are used as an act of judgment. And then in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, we read, Again I raised my eyes and saw four chariots coming out of, from between the two mountains, and the mountains were of, of bronze. We read that a couple of lectures ago, a couple of talks ago. And then I asked the angel who spoke with me, Who are these, my Lord? The angel said to me in reply, These are the four winds of the heavens, which are coming forth after being reviewed by the Lord of all the earth. So the four chariots are the four winds. So this idea, there's interchange, there is, the, the multiple images are used to convey the same reality. Four winds, four horses. Initially, they're seen as four horses because the focus was on the curses that, are, that, are, that they, they will bring into the world. And now they're seen as four winds to really heighten the fact that they are going to cover the entire world. And nothing escapes them. All right. So the first part with the four seals, we saw them in heaven coming down. Now they are down and they're ready. They've taken position, so to speak. The other interesting part that I'd like to point out is that in, in Hebrew, the word for, for winds in the plural and even in the singular, ruhot, can also be translated by spirits. So when you speak of four winds, you can also speak of four spirits. And we saw that also when Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus in the dark of the night. And in that conversation, in chapter 3, I believe, of the Gospel of John, um, Jesus told him, the wind blows where it wills. And again, even in the Greek, the word pneuma means wind and spirit. So you hear four winds, you can understand it as four spirits as well. So those four chariots, the four winds, are essentially the same thing, but positioned differently, now ready for action. The other interesting thing is that in the passage just quoted to you, Zechariah 6, 1 through 5, the angel said, these are the four winds of the heavens. However, in Revelation, we read that these are the four winds of the earth. There's a slight distinction between what Zechariah sees and what John sees. Zechariah still sees them as four winds of the heavens. John sees them as four winds of the earth. And perhaps the reason why it is so is because to indicate the proximity of the action. This is going to happen soon. This is going to take place imminently. The interesting thing to point out is that how are they going to, how will their action be manifested? We saw it in verse 1. Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or on sea or against any tree. So how are those curses being manifested in through natural means? Earth, sea, and trees. 
So it isn't that we're going to see something extraordinary being manifested. It's just that the natural events will take place that express, that make known or visible the actions of the angelic world. So again, it isn't about witnessing something extraordinary. It is about understanding the extraordinary in the ordinary. Reading the signs of times. The signs of the time that we live in. One interesting historical point to, that, that, that is worth mentioning is that Josephus in the War of the Jews recounts that while Jerusalem was surrounded by the army of Titus, the Roman army, Jerusalem was besieged. Both the Jews and the Romans, and this is witnessed by Titus and other Roman historians, saw heavenly chariots over the city. Many witnessed that for many days on end. Didn't happen once. Happened many times. And he said that those who were in the city, most people in the city just took that to be a good omen. However, the learned, the Jews who were learned, took that to be an ill omen. Because of Zechariah. They understood the four chariots are being unleashed against us. And how was that unleashed? Through normal means, through war. All right? But they were able to understand and discern in the action, in the political action, in the historical action of their day, the workings of the Lord. All right? Now, the one thing that we add to it here is that the workings of the Lord is also connected in a vital way to the liturgy. And it is the liturgy that drives history, not the other way around. That's the thing that Catholics need to understand. That in order to fix the world, you've got to fix the way you celebrate Mass. Orient the church appropriately, the world will follow. Because the church governs the world. That's the basic fundamental message of the book of Revelation. That if Catholics were to really orient themselves liturgically to God and celebrate the liturgy as they ought both architecturally, in their way of prayer, in the way they live a moral life, as soon as Catholics starts doing that and persevere, the world will orient itself. It'll follow. Now, let's move on to verse 4 through 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the take that Jehovah Witnesses have on this. They, they almost have a trademark on that 444,000, right? They make it their own. They tell you that there are 144,000 up in heaven and the rest of the blessed live on earth. It's like heaven is a condo or something. It's just going to fit 144,000 in there. <laughs> and by the way, the 144,000, ladies, I'm sorry, they're all men. We're going to see that from chapter 14. All right? And again, I repeat, I reiterate what I told you before. Do not invite Jehovah's Witnesses into your house. Do not do that. They are very dangerous, more than you imagine, because they have a very powerful social network, and that's how they get you. They know their scripture up to a point, but if you start driving your phone really hard against them, they'll just shut down. They know their, their drill very well, and they'll come back, and they'll come back again and again and again. And if you are emotionally Fragile, they'll surround you. 
All right? When I just debate with them, either I'm alone or I'm outside. I don't invite them in. Not anymore. Be very careful. Don't underestimate them. Do not under. I repeat that. Do not underestimate them. And again, those folks, God bless them. They are. They have a moral standard. They live a good life. I wish most Catholics would behave like them. Um, but but they're not Christians. They don't believe that Christ is God. They'll tell you, on the face value, if you, if you press them, they'll tell you Christ is not God. He's a God. All right. So let's now try to really understand what this 144,000 means. There are a couple of things we need to look at first. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. So let's really get into the sealing business. Did you know that the church is in the sealing business? She is. The seal in the biblical world signify a grant of authority and power, a guarantee of protection, and a mark of ownership. All these three. A grant of authority and power. So, if I seal a document and give it to you, now you can act in my name. I granted you authority and power. If you carry my seal, you act in my name. A mark of ownership. Slaves were sealed on their foreheads. All right? To say they, they're owned by somebody. Guess, guess what? Catholics are sealed on their foreheads. And we repeat that same gesture every time we enter the church. We take a little bit of water and we seal ourselves. In fact, the word sealing is part of the baptismal and of the confirmation rite. I seal you. What does that mean? You are now a slave and a servant of God Most High. All right? So when you hear those Catholic women saying, I can do a body whatever I want. It's my body. Sorry. It's not your body. It's Christ's. He owns it. You don't. If you start to begin to think about your body as not being your own, but it is the body of Jesus Christ, I, I'm willing to bet donuts to dollars that your entire behavior is going to change. If you really take that seriously, and then you go stand in front of the mirror, and I'm mostly talking to women here, because men don't stand in front of the mirror, or they do, they think of themselves as Arnold or something. Just like, but, <laughs> but women, when you stand in front of that woman, look at yourself in that mirror, and ask yourself the simple question, is that, does God approve of me being dressed the way I am? If you really start to take this to heart, it will completely change your moral outlook on life. Knowing that your body belongs to Christ, not to you. Now, holy baptism is the seal of the Spirit. I'm just going to give you a string of references. I'm going to go through some of them. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21 through 22. Galatians 3, 27. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Chapter 4, verse 30. And Roman, look at Roman chapter 4, verse 11. All of these verses point to the fact that believers are being marked, are being sealed as the covenant keepers. As the covenant keepers. That is the power of the sacrament. It seals you and it empowers you. It gives you the power you need to do what God wants you to do. 
That's why the sacraments are so important. So, for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21-22, but, but it is God who establishes us with you and has commissioned us. He has put His seal upon us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So He commissioned us, He empowers us, the guarantee, and He seals us. So we are His slave, His servant. In verse 3 of chapter 7, by the way, it reads, Do not harm the earth or the, or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants. Right? And in the Greek word, you can go servants, you can go slave. Either way. So that idea is, is very much prevalent here. In, F, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many as you who were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So when you are baptized, you're now commissioned to act as another Christ. That's the whole idea of, and that's what basically, it's, it's, it's also a hint to the sacrament of confirmation. That's what the sacrament of confirmation effectively enables you to do. It is because you're confirmed that you are able to bear witness. It empowers you to do what you have to do. It has nothing to do with you personally. Age has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with the power of the sacrament. And then, of course, how you nurture it. In, in 2 Timothy, verse, chapter 2, verse 8, 19, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. What is the seal? The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's important um, because in a Jewish tradition, the seal and the name of the Lord are one. To speak of the seal and to speak of the name of the Lord, it is one. Effectively, you are sealed with the name of the Lord. Now, to Catholic ears, that should not sound very strange. It should sound very familiar. Right? When you bless yourself and you do the sign of the cross, what do you say? In the what? Uh-huh. You're, essentially, what you're saying is in the seal of the same thing. Like you took a stamp and you stamped yourself on the, on the forehead. Told you the church in the business of sealing. Alright? That's who you are. You'll see the same idea in Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4. I'm going to skip it. But I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 through 9 because it's a beautiful passage. One that is worth memorizing. It's the Shema. And in Arabic, those of you who understand Arabic, Ishma, Isma, hear, same word. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day, now listen carefully, shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in, in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. There is no skimping studying scripture. This is God giving this command. You're going to have to do all these things. You have to talk to your kids about it. You have to think about them. You have to think about when you sleep. When you think about when you get up. You know, Father Nabil's... Um, one of the advice that Father Nabil gave me is, when you get up in the morning, sign yourself with the sign of the cross. When you sleep, sign yourself. This comes straight from here. This is scriptural. All right? 
and you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You're sealing yourself with this, with these words on your foreheads, on your doorposts, and on your gates. Everything. The sealing, when one, one person is sealed, everything that he owns is also sealed. Everything belongs to God. That's the idea. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 36, And you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And that plate, Aaron the high priest, was to wear on his forehead. Holy to the Lord. That's another way of doing the sign of the cross, by the way, when you sign yourself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy What you're saying is, I am holy to the Lord. That's what it means. That's why we say we have to be in a state of grace. Right? Holy to the Lord. Now notice, I went from Revelation through Corinthian, Galatian, Ephesians, Th- Timothy to Ezekiel. And from Ezekiel we're going to Deuteronomy. Actually, I skipped Ezekiel. I shouldn't have because it's a very important one. It's the major Connection here. In Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4 we read, Go through the city Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. That's in the prophecy of Ezekiel after he sees the four horses. There again the horses are stayed. They cannot take, they cannot move on until an angel shows up. Actually six of them with one dressed in linen meaning in priestly clothes and he gives the command, Go through the city and put a mark. And that word in the Hebrew is ta. The letter ta which is the letter T, and that letter was written as a cross. All right? So essentially go around and put a cross on their, on their forehead. That's why we sign ourselves also with a sign of the cross. It goes all the way back to that context. And that context was when God is preparing to chastise Israel by sending the Babylonians against Jerusalem. And He's going through the city and marking on the foreheads all those who sigh for the state of things, how things are really bad, because they were really bad in a temple. Right? The, 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 the priests were not doing what they were supposed to do, and people were sighing, seeing what they were going. And those were sealed with a sign of the cross, which is a prefiguration, of course, to baptism. And that's, that's the initial reference from this text in Revelation. It goes, to, it goes to the book of Ezekiel. And then from there it goes to Exodus, to the two passages read to you, which is Exodus which is the Shema and the sealing of the forehead of Aaron. And it goes even deeper than that. It goes all the way to Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 15. Cain had killed his brother and God had sent him away. And Cain tells him, my punishment is too heavy for me. If anyone sees me, he will slay me. And God says, not so, if anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. I hope that by now you understand the sevenfold. Again, the notion of covenant, right? And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. That's the first seal of protection, mark of protection, put on Cain, even though Cain was a criminal. I don't have time to get into this. Eventually we'll get into, we'll go to, to Genesis. It is quite complicated. 
quite complicated to really understand what's going on. It sounds, it sounds really strange. But think of it this way, as far as we are concerned. Cain, to us, of course, Cain has two sides, as many, uh, many people in Scripture. From a typological point of view, Cain represents Satan, because as Satan, he is a murderer. But also, Cain represents the sinner. That is every one of us. And God extends his protection to sinners, so that they may be brought back into the fold. All right? So what you see, going back to the book of Revelation, what is being done here is that those 144,000 are people of flesh and blood living, who are contemporary to John, and they are being sealed. We're going to get into the number and who, are, who these people are. But for now, we need to understand this is not an event that's going to take place at the end of times. At the end of time, this is an event that happened during John's lifetime. The other interesting thing I want to point out to you is that in, in Genesis, it says he put a mark on him. It doesn't use the word seal. And you'll see in the book of Revelation that St. John uses sealing when he speaks of the righteous ones and uses marking when he speaks of those who follow the beast. So those who follow the beast have the mark of the beast on their forehead. They're not sealed. They have the mark of the beast on their forehead. And those who follow Christ are sealed. Marking does not provide you with the, with the power, with the protection. Okay? Is the, is the purpose of the sealing to completely shield them from the events they're going to take? Is this sort of a... a um, are they going to be raptured? No. The purpose of the sealing is not to take them away from the tribulation that is to come. But it is to give them the strength to be able to go through it. So that effectively, when a tribulation hits, those who are sealed have the moral and, and spiritual strength to endure it. And it will become, it will become their way to sanctity. It will make them saints. And those who are not sealed will harden their hearts and it will bring upon them judgment. This has practical implications for our lives today. God has no intention of taking us out of the world. And God has no intention of sparing us suffering. So we need to, to be ready for this and accept it as men and women of God. But God has every intention of, give us, of giving us all the graces we need to go through it. That's the difference. The problem is that because of our lack of faith, whenever we, we think of suffering, as soon as we think of suffering, suffering has this hypnotic effect on us. It makes us forget everything else. There is us, all alone, and then there's suffering. And there's nobody. That's the way those who are away from God live suffering. It's cruel. But if you are walking in God, you're never alone. And God will not abandon you, but will give you the graces you need to go through it and grow because He loves you. That's the purpose of the sealing. The reason, therefore, why seal is given is so that people can be a witness, so they can effectively witness to God. 
They're not sealed so that they can go and be live in a ghetto where there's just themselves and never interact with anybody else. Let's just build ourselves a nice Catholic ghetto and go live in it. They're sealed so that they can be true witness to Christ in the world. Because remember, the world is to be conquered for Christ. We see that in Isaiah 42, um, verse 6 and 7. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of, of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. And again, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, Is it to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel? And you can also take a look at Isaiah 51, verse 4 and 8. Each and every one of us, each and every one of us are called to live out our mission because we are all sealed. We are called to give witness. And by the power of God, we can. This is how we fight the battle. This is how we conquer. So let's look at the 144,000 now. First of all, anyone here still believes this is exactly 144,000? All right, good. Because that's usually the first question I ask somebody. Says, You're sure it's 144,000? 144,001? All right, what is 144,000? Let's break it apart. It is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Right? 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So the two 12s, holy and holy, right? Because 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. So it is the, the, the number of the church, doubled, right? Tripled will be in heaven, doubled on earth, holy. 10 is many, right? That's the meaning of, of 10. How many 10s do we got? Three, many, 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 all of them. Get it? 144,000. It's a symbolic number. It doesn't mean... 144,000. I'll take questions later. All right? And if you have questions about that, we have a series that we dealt with numbers and symbols. I, I recommend you, you go back to it. The other important part is that those numbered form an army. So what you have here is really a call role for the tribes. It's like you're calling all the divisions in your army. In a loud voice, they're being, they're being proclaimed. 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. They're answering the call. This is an army. Now, it is not an army in a conventional sense of, you know, taking weapons and go chop heads. It is an army of people who are going to witness to the Lord through their suffering and be able to endure the tribulation and therefore conquer. This is what we're talking about. This is an army of priests. This is liturgical again and again and again. This is the whole point behind it. Now, the reason why we think it's an army is because this co- kind of corresponds to a census. They're being counted out. And in the Old Testament, every time you have a census, it is to count armies. Not every time, most of the time. So, for instance, in Numbers, chapter 1, verse 2, in, um, in chapter 18, no, verse, I'm sorry, Numbers, chapter 1, verse 2, 18, 20. In the first book of Chronicles, chapter 27, verse 23, in the second book of Samuel, chapter 24, Verse 1 through 9. In all these instances, every time there's a census, it is to determine the might of the army. And here what you have is a perfect army. 144,000. 
The other important thing is that the thousand was the basic military division in the camp of Israel. All right, you can find that in Numbers chapter ten, verse verse two through four, in the second book of Samuel, chapter eighteen, verse one, and there's another twelve references that I'm going to spare you right now. This is also, by the way, the significance of Micah's famous prophecy of the nativity. Even though you remember O Bethlehem of Judah, right? Even though Bethlehem is too small to be counted among what? The thousands of Judah. So it is a city that is too small to produce a thousand. Okay, even though you are this small, a king shall come out of you. That's the, that's the context behind it. It's a military context. So essentially, you can think of it as the tribes, the names of the tribes are being shouted out, and he is listening to the military roll call of the Lord's hosts. In this case, each of the 12 tribes is able to field 12, 12 full divisions, a numerically perfect army of 144,000 soldiers of the Lord. So what you have here, therefore, distribute this. what you have here is a representation of this army that is coming to fight. So it isn't only the angels involved, it is also us. So angels and us, what does that make? Put them together, what do you get? The church, exactly. Exactly. So it is a battle of the church. Now, it is a battle of the church because you have the angels who came down from heaven who are ready to unleash this tribulation. You have the ones who are sealed through the angelic powers, 144,000 of them, and those are, are there to give witness, are empowered to give witness. And, and so... What you, when you put them together, you get essentially the church. However, in this specific instance, historically, there's another important meaning to it, because he only focuses on the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, before I go through this diagram that I gave you, there is now a very important decision that we have to make. You see... If we suppose that the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD, meaning after the destruction of the temple, then you are going to run into a difficulty. I'll hasten to say that if you survey the theologians out there and you take their positions on this issue, most of them fall in this camp, post-70 AD. The book was written after 70 AD. I don't. I fall in the minority camp. I think this was written before 7080. This is one good reason. Many commentators, many very brilliant commentators will tell you that the 12 tribes represent the, the whole of the church. If this is indeed the case, then there is a redundancy between this passage and the passage that follows in chapter 7, where we see the multitude who joined the 144,000. If the 144,000 represent the whole of the church, what's, what's left for the multitude? Who are they? That's the first difficulty you're going to run into. There's a second difficulty that to me is even more daunting, more difficult to deal with, which is the following. We know by now that the book of Revelation is patterned, is patterned um, along the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, when we see the angels come to seal the 144,000, 
it is absolutely clear, and you will not find a commentator who will deny this, that they are sinning people in the city of Jerusalem. I, I don't know of a commentator who will say otherwise, of a book of Ezekiel. They're sinning people who are in the book of Jerusalem. And so now, you have an interpretive issue to deal with. Why is it that when you look at the same words and the same imagery in the book of Ezekiel, you interpret it to mean Jerusalem? And when you hit it in the book of Revelation, you interpret it to mean the whole world. There's no basis for this. Okay? If you look at it from the perspective of a pre-70 AD explanation, you will see that the 144,000 are being sealed right now are precisely those Christians of Jewish background who live in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And that provides us today with a consoling understanding that if we were to feel to meet calamity, if calamity was in store for San Diego, let's say, and even though we don't see those angels, we would be sealed in the same way. So the two mistakes we should not make is number one, to think that the Jews were special, that the sealing will happen only to them and to nobody else. And the other mistake is to think that the sealing is basically everybody in all times. On the one hand, you constrict the meaning to those Jews living in Jerusalem and only them, and it doesn't apply anywhere else. On the other hand, you dilute the meaning so much that it means absolutely nothing. It just means being baptized. And that's it. Whereas here, it means that in specific circumstances, and we Catholics have this intuition, we know that whenever we feel we are faced with difficulties, we know that God gives us extra grace. We call it extra graces. We don't really know what it means, but we say extra graces. God will give you the grace to go through it. It's intuitive, and I said, if you're hit hard, God will be there with you. That's what this is all about. For those reasons, internally, to remain, to remain consistent with the proper explanation of the book of Revelation that is, that is in harmony with the rest of Scripture, I would say, since in Ezekiel, we talk about the 144,000 being in Jerusalem, it follows in the book of Revelation, those 144,000 historically were in Jerusalem and needed protection. There are other texts that support that, chiefly among them Act 2, when Peter is talking to the, the, the people who live in Jerusalem and in Judea. So, those 144,000 represent these people who are going to face the tribulation of 70 AD. And likewise, by extension through the four senses of Scripture, any of us, who are to face calamities or difficulties and are faithful to the Lord, God will provide His seed. So you see, the book of Revelation is not a book about the end of the world and how God is going to destroy everything. It's a book of hope. In a very concrete way, it shows us how God is present in our lives today and acts and helps us to go through the difficulty and at the same time how He is the Lord of Lords and judges everyone. And no one escapes his judgment. Now let's look at the tribes. I passed on to you those diagrams. Because the tribes are read in a very specific order. There are about 20 different listing of the tribes in scripture. And this one is unique. We don't find it anywhere else. The closest we have is the one in Ezekiel. So look at the one in Ezekiel first. First, in, 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 the, in the diagram titled, The Order of the Tribes in Ezekiel 48... So if you go to the end of the chapter of uh, Ezekiel, chapter 48, the end of the chapter, you will see precisely this ordering. 
uh, Levi, uh, Judah, Reuben, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Zebulon, Issachar, and Simeon, Naphtali, Asher, and Gad. Now, the first three, Levi, Judah, and Reuben, are, were, were born to um, Leah. Now, you remember, Joseph had, um, uh, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. The one whom he loved was Rachel. He married Leah and Rachel. And then both of them had maidservants that they gave him to have kids because they were in competition, so to speak. And that's how we end up with the 12 boys that he had from which the 12 tribes come. All right? So the senior Leah means the, the three older kids that came from Leah. And the junior Leah means the three that came from Leah later, that were younger. And these were Zebulon, Issachar, and Simeon. Now, there is a definite link between the seal that we just talked about and the tribes. And that link is in Exodus chapter 28, verse 11 through 21. As a gem cutter engraves a seal, so shall you have the two stones engraved with the names of the Son of Israel and then mounted in gold filigree work. Set these two stones on the shoulder straps of the ephod as memorial stones of the sons of Israel. Thus Aaron shall bear their names on his shoulders as a reminder before the Lord. Make filigree rosettes of gold, as well as two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and fasten the cord-like chains to the filigree rosettes. The breastpiece of decision you shall also have made, embroidered like the ephod, with gold, thread, and violet, purple, and scarlet, yarn and cloth of fine linen twined. It is to be square when folded double, a span high and a span wide. On it you shall mount four rows of precious stones, in the first row, carnelian, topaz, emerald, in the second, garnet, sapphire, and beryl. The third, jacinth, agat, agate, and amethyst. The fourth, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper. These stones are to be mounted in gold filigree work, twelve of them to match the names of the sons of Israel. Each stone engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. So the reason why the high priest had those stones is effectively they represented the seals of all the tribes. And he took it upon himself. So those describes what? The cloth of the high priest. So again, the liturgical setting. It's about how he dressed when he went before the Lord, carrying the seals of what? Of the covenant that these tribes swore with God that they would abide by. That's the important connection we have with the sealing and the tribes. And now we see them here distributed this way. But then if you look in the, in the second diagram, the one that John has, we begin with Judah. Now if you follow the order, we go Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh. Then he turns around, goes back to Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. Right. So he starts from Judah and he ends with Benjamin. What is peculiar about Judah and Benjamin is that essentially those were the two tribes of the southern kingdom. After Israel broke, you had ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel, and you had the two tribes in the, in the southern kingdom of, of, uh, of uh, Judah, may, consisting of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. What was so special about the tribe of Benjamin? What did they have that no other tribe had? They had Jerusalem on their territory. Jerusalem was on the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. So, look what he does. 
First, as far as Leah is concerned, you have here Judah, Reuben, and Simeon. Levi is not now among the first listed. He's been downgraded. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood is on its way out. Okay. It's on its way out. And the other important thing he does is that normally among the 12 tribes, you had Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim, if you recall, were the two children of Joseph. Joseph was what, essentially? Who is Joseph, as far as Jacob is concerned? He is his firstborn. Joseph is his firstborn. Why? Because he's the firstborn of Rachel. All right? And then Joseph went to Egypt, recall the story, and then he had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then he received a double blessing. And so, instead of having one tribe in his name, he ended up having two tribes in his name, Manasseh and Ephraim. However, Ephraim is out, you don't see him here, and Dan is out, you don't see him here. There's no Dan and there's no Ephraim. The reason why, so instead of Ephraim we have Joseph, and Dan is out. We have Manasseh, Joseph and Benjamin down there for Rachel. So the reason why Dan is not present is that because Dan had a dubious reputation. In fact, one of, among the lords of the of the of the Jews is the notion that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. But in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 47, 49, verse 17, in the book of Leviticus 24, 10, and 11, in the first book of Kings, verse 12 through uh, chapter 12, verse 28 through 30, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 15, and 8, 16, in all those references, Dan has always a dubious a dubious reputation. So he's out. And Ephraim is out. Why? Because of the prophecy of Hosea. Ephraim was known for idolatry. Ephraim was also a synonym synonymous with Israel. Many times Israel is called Ephraim. But Ephraim was known for idolatry. And then pardon? Yes. In both cases Ephraim was out. Dan is present here, but uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the old one, you see Joseph being present, right? So he'd only list in, this, in the old one, because it's the old um, covenant, you see um, all 12 sons of Jacob being listed. In the case of John, he actually brings Joseph Make sure Ephraim is out also, and, and, but bring Manasseh. So in this specific instance, what I'm trying to say is that even though you, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, only Manasseh shows up. Ephraim is not there. Right? Um, and, and in the book of Hosea, chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, um, I'm sorry, in Hosea, from chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 14, verse 8, we hear Hosea's... Uh, oracle against Ephraim. But especially in chapter 5, verse 9, Ephraim shall become a waste on the day of chastisement. Against the tribes of Israel, I announce what is sure to be. So Ephraim was to be no more. And because of that, you don't see him listed here. So what effectively John does, or at least the vision that he receives from the tribes coming out, is that it's a purified Israel. Idolatry is taken out. And um, 
any behavior that is against the Lord is taken out. That's the idea behind not having neither Dan nor Ephraim. Both of them are out. And it echoes the letters. If you go back to the letters, you'll see over and over again God, Jesus, calling the churches to repentance. To clear the church from heresies, from immoral behavior. The same thing. We see here a little bit sort of the result of that. So in the, in the, end, in, in the end of Revelation... Chapter 21, more specifically, verse 12 through 14, St. John puts the names of the apostles around the city, pairing them with the tribes. Right? So, you see the order of the tribes, you'll see that Peter starts with Judah. Okay? Hint, hint. Right? We can, we, we can suppose, we can actually strongly imagine that Judas Iscariot was not there. Just as Dan and... and, uh, and um, Ephraim are not here. So what you have here is really an image of the church militant when under attack. God gives us the ceiling of protection to help us be victorious even when He sends a tribulation on the world. He doesn't abandon His own. And I've told you about the the literal meaning and the, the implication of Choosing a post-70 AD, I don't find that position very tenable. And actually, I find the arguments usually to be very weak. Uh, I think this gives us insight in how God deals with us in very tough situations, provided we have faith in Him. So if you start from the letters, and you see how God calls each one of us to be ready, to be prepared. This is the precondition. We have to be ready. We have to be prepared. We have to trust Him. We have to walk with Him. And when we do that, even though we don't see those angels... They come and they give us the steel protection, particularly our guardian angel. Particularly our guardian angel, who's always there protecting us and helping us in so many hidden ways that we don't know about. And I would not be surprised if, God willing, one day we reach heaven, we spend you know, the first three days saying just thank you to our guardian angel. Oh, you were there? Oh, thanks. Oh, you were there? You did that? Oh, thanks. You were there? Oh, wow. That's how it's going to be when we find out everything He did for us. So again, I repeat it. The purpose of the book is not to scare us. The purpose of the book is not to fill us with fear. The purpose of the book is to make us understand the power of the liturgy, the power of the church, and how God deals with the world, and how He will be with us through any difficulty we may have. God bless you. And we have time for questions. Yes, yes. The n- number twelve represents Israel. All right. So in 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 uh, in Hebrew thinking, there's no way to say better and best. You can't say that. So if you want to say something is better, you will say it's good, good. If you say it's the best, you say it's good, good, good. You repeat it. That's why we say the Lord is holy, holy, holy. All right. So that's what I'm alluding to here. All right? Yes. He's been downgraded. He's been switched with Simeon. That's why. Correct. No, 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 no. It's not about being born at different times. It's about changing his position. So John did it. I mean, in the vision he was receiving, it's done on purpose. And so anyone who is of Jewish background will hear that and will know, whoa, that's big. Levi is not there. All right. Think of it this way. 
uh, youth these days can memorize the names of basketball players or baseball players, right? And so when a team comes to the, to, to the field, right, they're expecting certain players to be there. And suddenly a particular player is not there. They'll go, whoa, he's not there? They, they, the, the power of the impact hits them, all right? The, the Christians in, in, in the time of John knew the scripture the way the youth today know baseball players. And so as soon as they hear this, that whoa, Levi's not there. Okay? Yes? Why is there a compass? Pardon? A compass. It's just to indicate that they're effectively easterly oriented. That's all. Yeah. Yes. The hero Israel? It is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. That's where the Shema is. One of the most beautiful prayer in the Old Testament. Yes, in the back. Pardon? No, I said, no, no, I didn't say the East represent the church. I said typically we are east, Easterly oriented because of the rising of the sun that represents the coming of Christ. All right? And in the, in the, in the Jewish mentality, the, 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 the abode of the devil is the north. So it's really interesting that these days the world uses a compass, the north. He's the head. That's all. Yeah. Yes. How is the seed provided to us? Well, first of all, you know, we, we're going to get to this later. All Christians, all baptized Christians are sealed. All, right? You know that. But here we talk about what we, we say commonly, you get extra graces. Right? So the way you know you're getting extra graces, when you're going through a difficult time, you're actually going through it. And people will tell you, I cannot... I can't understand how you can go through this. And you within yourself know someone is holding me. Somebody is carrying me through this. Very well. Let's stand and pray. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.